This podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest. I'm Conrad. And I'm Matt. Each week, two optimistic Aussie blokes explore new (laughs) and challenging ideas outside of our echo chamber on our totally realistic quest to achieve world peace, maybe some personal enlightenment. Is that too much of an oversell? No, just roll the montage. Okay. I'm right in your room. What are you talking about? Straight men enjoy gay sex. What? The Bible is extremely pro-abortion. You're a sexist man who loves Jordan Peterson. This is progressive? No, this is arson. Do you think that kick us out? I've done psychedelics 150 times in my life. Why the hell should I trust you now? Don't define me by what I do in bed. Oh my god, these ideas can be like membership key to a particular social group. So break free from your echo chamber each week on Ideas Digest, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's going to be an amazing time. Amazing. Welcome. Season four. Troy, it is season four. It's not three. Season four. That was that was actually beautiful. It was quite operatic. Season four, and we have a cracking season coming up. We have been sharing some stuff on socials about what is coming up, but we have had a break, and we are back earlier from that break than we anticipated. We just got itchy feet. We just had to get going. We were going to come back in March, but here we are mid-Feb and we are dropping episode one. And, you know, when you say we had a break, we had a break from recording, but we still did lots of stuff, didn't we, around the podcast over over the break? It was the royal we because you did a lot. One of the, the big things that you did, I mean, you've, you did many things, but one of the big things is our new website, just www.iwasateenagefundamentalist.com. Get on there. It's got everything. You can read more about us. You can you can see pictures of us. They're beautiful. But we've also got in there, we've got our interviews that we've done. We've got stuff for media. What else have we got in there, Troy? Yeah, well, the, the point of it was I had a journalist tell me, how is anyone going to find out about who you guys are and what you do without a website? So she actually suggested to me, create a website. So that was the intention behind it was just make it a one-stop shop that people can find us, find out about us. There's links to Patreon. There's links to the merch store. There's links to the podcast itself, of course. And so it's just a place that if you want to introduce anyone to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, you can say, oh, I was a teenagefundamentalist.com and, and people can find us and find out about us. So there's, there's quite a bit on there. And there's also our email mailing list which you can sign up for as well. So when you go to the website, please go in there, add yourself because we'll just send you some updates and other bits and pieces. And if you do sign up, there's access to some unreleased content coming soon. Coming soon to a podcast near you. So was it, it was a good break. Did you have, although you did do a lot of this sort of stuff for the pod, did you have a, a bit of a break? Did you go away? What happened? No, not really. My work was continuous so I just continued to work but it slows down so I had some time if I'm not busy while I'm on the clock at work I feel really guilty and maybe that's a leftover from church thing but I do I feel guilty so I have to fill my time even if there's not a lot of work to do so I was able to sort of pour myself into the podcast a little bit you know one of the things that we did was the ad swaps 
So I was able to reach out to some podcasts just like us or just like ours and say, hey, how about we throw an ad for our podcast on yours and you throw an ad for your podcast on ours. So you've probably heard that at the beginning of this podcast and later on through this episode, there'll also be some other stuff dropped in. So please understand that that's just us doing swaps and we're trying to build our relationship with other podcasts just like ours and we're also trying to promote across the platform. It's it's podcast evangelism, essentially. You know, the other thing that we did over the break, Brian, was, and again, the royal we, the other thing that I did over the break was set up some live calls or schedule some live calls in Patreon. We've got like a broadcast going to be happening where we have guests come in and speak and you can have a bit of a Q&A with them. Yeah, that's right. So it's a monthly live event where the former guests of the show will come on and you'll be able to fire your questions through the Q&A portal and they'll respond to you in real time. So we've got people like Anthony Van Brown, we've got Tara Jean Stevens from Heaven Bent, Caro, who used to be in um, C3, and Josie McSkimming. And we've got Josie McSkimming coming in as well. So if you've got questions for these guests, please come along. We wanted to make Patreon a little bit more appealing. So hopefully that will be something that you want to be a part of. And if you are unable to make the live call, that's okay, because the backlog of recordings will also be made available to Patreon subscribers. So if you want that little bit more of us and that little bit more content, please come along and be a part of Patreon. I'm looking forward to those because I know that when I listen to episodes of podcasts where they have guests, I think to myself, but what about this? But what about that? So you'll get to ask those questions. You can say, what about this and what about that? And hopefully people will be able to ask those itching questions that you've got. So Brian, enough of that. Season four, here we are. I'm genuinely thrilled with the schedule that we've built. I mean, we've got some amazing people coming in. We've got some fantastic topics that we're going to discuss. But today's topic, Brian, the fear of hell. It's a biggie. And I think this one is the probably a central topic for a, a lot of people driven to Christianity and even other faiths that say, if you're not part of it, then you're going to go to this place that's probably not the best to hang out. So we want to talk a bit to it because we know that quite often when this is brought up in our Facebook group and on other social channels, that it is a real thing for people. It doesn't matter if you've been out of the scene for two years or 20 years, the fear can still be the same. Yeah, and I want to set some realistic expectations here that this episode is not going to solve this for anybody, right? There's no easy fix, especially in an hour. But I think what this episode will do is it will set some direction for you if you want to find out, if you want to look at some other resources, if you want to, I guess, go on a bit of a journey of deconstructing hell, because I think it's really, really important. As you just said, some people deal with it you know, years and years later. I still wrestle with this at times, 24 years later. Yeah, it's it really is something that's quite live. I mean, I think like many things, you and I have a bit of a different experience and potentially a different view even back then of what hell is, was, and its impact on, on the way that we lived our faith out. And maybe that's why you were a lot more passionate and you were a lot more sold out because you you did really hook on to that, God, I've got to stop these people from going to this really shit place. 
Yeah, but I think a lot of it too was my own fear because remember I was booted out of the revival center and it was pretty much implied to me, if not stated, that I'd lost my salvation. And so for me, I had to make sure that I was not going there first and foremost. And then because I believed that so passionately, it was about trying to help other people. And as someone said to me recently, if this is, I think it was David Ames, you know, the the graceful atheist, he said, if this is real, then saving people from this is actually the correct response. Absolutely. I feel that people that have deconstructed or people that have walked away still hold on to this belief in hell at some level, even though we realize, or we may have, you know, researched it and stuff to realize that it makes no sense. And I guess I want to ask, what is it that makes us hold on to this? Is it indoctrination? Is it trauma? Is it simple fear? But one thing I can say is it's not rational. That's for certain. It's not rational. It does permeate every corner of society, speaking about Western society, because even people who aren't believers in Jesus or another faith or whatever, quite often will go, you know, burn in hell. or Go to hell, yeah. Go to hell. And, you know, that person, surely that person is a classic case of who would go to hell. So we associate that good heaven, bad hell. Yeah, and think of all the movies that are around and about, right? Like all the horror movies. Hell is a a theme in so many horror movies, and it's a place that you don't want to go. One thing I really want to stress is there is no literal evidence for hell. You can't say, oh, let's go and have a look at hell over here. Let's look at this big hole in the ground, and here's where the devil lives. That, That doesn't happen. You've just been told. You've just been conditioned. And some people might say, oh, yeah, you know, there's these stories of people that have come back from the dead and they've talked about hell, etc. 100%. But there's also people that have told stories about being anally probed by aliens. You choose what you want to believe. That's right. Some people get their kicks in different places. Hell was always, for me, something that didn't make sense. So... Even like I don't think I was driven into that into Christianity personally as a, a fear that I was going to burn in hell. I was I was driven into Christianity partly, very small part of it might, might have been that, but most of it was hey you can be a better person you can you can be um, involved in this. It was community, you know. We've spoken about all this stuff before, so I always had an issue with this God who sends people to hell. I always used to think. If that's what God's like, he's a real prick. Like, why would you want to create people to chuck them into this eternal fire? So I always had an issue with it, and I was always trying to reconcile because I was told, absolutely, this was part and parcel. This stuff you have to believe and you have to buy into it. I think that's one of the big differences between mainstream society's view of hell and fundamentalist Christianity's view of hell is that in the mainstream, the devil rules hell and the, and hell is the devil's place and the devil drags you there or tricks you there or whatever he does. But in Christianity, God sends you to hell. And I saw a meme the other day that said Jesus came to save us from his dad, right? And from, from an Eastern Orthodox Christian perspective, what I'm told anyway, and I don't pretend to be an expert, is they don't actually believe that. They don't believe that Jesus came to save you from his dad. Let's face it, Western Christianity and what we were raised in is that God created hell, not the devil. 
God sends people to hell, not the devil, or people choose to go to hell, but let's come back to that later on. But either way, it's constructed by God, it's constructed by the Father, and God is the scary one here. Just because you haven't uttered those magical Christian prayers, the conversion prayer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's that's your ticket out, isn't it? It it doesn't matter what you've done in your life because you hear about all these deathbed conversions and, you know, there's all those rumours that even Charles Darwin got to his deathbed and uttered the sinner's prayer. What a crock of shit. It's it's just ridiculousness. And again, it's just a formulaic response that you can co- coerce and control people and manipulate the fuck out of them. But look, if the metaphor of God as the father is true, or God is the father, then as a parent, I can tell you that hell makes absolutely no sense. Because if God is a loving father, then why would he send any of his children to an eternity in hell for wrong theology or any sin, really? I think if we're going to say that God is a parent and creates hell, then I think God's a really shitty parent. And really, I mean, if you look at this doctrine in its extreme form, and I know not every Christian's going to believe this, but every newborn infant belongs in hell. And, and they're hateful in God's eyes from the very first moment of existence because of original sin. You look at your, your, your child or you look at your you know, nieces and nephews or anything like that and try to believe earnestly that a loving God is going to send them to hell. Then, as, you know, as uh, David Bentley said, if you are able to do so, then your religion has corrupted your conscience. I have two kids. And I know that there is absolutely nothing that my ch- children could do that would cut me off from my children. And I mean it. And someone, some people have said some really horrific things to me. What about if your son did this to your daughter or whatever? And I'm just like, no, I would still, I would be disappointed. I'd be heartbroken, but I would not cut my, my son off. I would continue to have a relationship with my son, even if he was in jail. There would be no eternal separation here. You know what I mean? And so if I'm doing that as a parent, how much more is God, who is supposedly love, supposed to be be doing that too? I just don't think that it it lines up with the, the claims of Christianity that God is love does not line up with the, the claims of Christianity that there's an eternal hell. But this is where, where there's inconsistency. So you, you get all these additional rules because you hear that about like you're saying realistically you should look at a baby and go okay you belong in hell according to this doctrine nobody wants to accept that it's not palatable within the church wall so what do you get you get oh well there's an age of responsibility where you know it ticks over and i heard this a few times that you know until the kid's about 10 or 12 they're under the covering of their parents and when they can make their own decision up until that point and whatever that point is it's determined by different people by different criteria and standards until that point they're under that covering because we make up those rules along the way because it's not palatable to say this beautiful child that you've just birthed the place they belong is hell. That's right. And and the flip side of that, if, if that was true, then it's better to abort the baby, right? It's better to to never bring this baby into the world. And, and even if it's to grow up, it's better to actually abort babies and save them from hell 
than than to let them be born and and possibly reject God. It it just makes no sense. And I'm sure you remember, Brian, that as Christians, this used to creep into our minds and we'd go, oh, hold on, what? And then I don't know about you, but I would think about it a little bit and then I would sort of push it away because I would just accept, no, I'm being told that this is a true doctrine and that I have to accept this. And I would sort of sweep those inconsistencies and sweep those objections under the carpet. And it wasn't until I started to deconstruct that they all came out from under the carpet and said, oh, here we are, remember us. And then you start to start to deal with it. But even saying that, all right, like we're talking about this already, that doesn't remove from me the fear of hell because it was so deeply ingrained in me. Yeah, look, it, it is very much a part of it. But for, for me, as I said at the start, I, I always wrestled with it. I always found it difficult. So I would have these conversations, particularly with my brothers, because they were the ones that saw me come into the faith. And I'd be like, but, but it doesn't make sense. That person's good. And because they haven't said a particular thing or believed a particular thing, and what about those people that haven't been reached or had the opportunity to, to know the story of Jesus? Will they go to hell? You will remember because your knowledge of the Bible is far better than mine, but there's a, a verse in Romans about being judged by their deeds or something like that. It's, I remember hooking onto that one and going, oh, yeah, that's okay. Good people will still go there. So I'd, I'd put all these little get-out-of-jail-free clauses in there because it just didn't make sense to me because I was really attracted to that graceful, loving, accepting God. And then that side just didn't seem like something that made sense. But you're right, I bought into it, absolutely, because that's what controls you. That's the manipulation that gets you to bring others in to your church, into your group, into your denomination or whatever it is, because you've got to have a hook. You've got to say, hey, if you come in here, you're not going to go there. Yeah, well, it's part of the package, isn't it? But the other thing to think about, right, is if the doctrine of original sin is true and everyone is born into sinfulness and therefore are destined to hell, you know, regardless of these caveats of what happens to the children and they go to a, a third place, and, you know, people make up all this shit. None of it's in the Bible, right? So we talk about, oh, we're biblical Christians, but by the way, we've got all these other, other beliefs. But if God has created the universe fully knowing that there was going to be a fall, that all these people were going to be created and destined for eternal torment, then really he's the saddest. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, let me ask you, Brian, if you knew that you were going to create a situation or or create a context that both your children were going to go through absolute suffering, even temporarily, would you go into that situation or would you rethink what you're attempting to do? If I were a psychopath, I would absolutely go into that situation. So... I guess what we're saying is, is God a psychopath if God were real? Yeah, well, sure. But what I'm saying is for a, from a Christian perspective, and I'm going to jump in and out of this today of, you know, from a Christian perspective and from a non-Christian perspective, but you can't have it both ways. You can't have God is this loving, you know, God is love. There's a verse, Brian, God is love. And yet he has created a universe where people are destined to eternal torment. But if he creates a world where he knows that they're going to choose eternal torment, or he, let's say, he didn't know that they were going to choose eternal torment, then he's a failure. And he's not God. 
Oh, totally. An all-knowing God would not do that. It, it's just it, it never sat comfortably, and I, I don't I don't wrestle with a fear of hell. I think I did for a, a little bit coming out as I was deconstructing. But you know, one book, and I know that I shared this book with you because it was a pivotal point for me. And I'd already started many years ago to deconstruct. But Rob Bell, Love Wins. You you read that as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. You put me onto it one day, you know, long after I'd walked away. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll have a look at what's going on in that space. So, yeah, I read the book. Yeah, because, you know, Rob Bell, for me, was someone that was pivotal in my deconstruction because he used to bring out these videos. I think they were called Numa. Mm, maybe. I think they were Numa videos. And they were just... The incredibly was he well. the global senior pastor or was that <laughs> was. what's his name Co- not Corey Hart Corey Hart was I wear my sunglasses at night what's the guy's <laughs> name too. Corey somebody is the Corey someone, senior yeah. pastor of Numa anyway sorry I digress of their two global campuses both based in one city it's um <laughs> it's just such a crock of shit but it it was very these videos were really well produced and it, it really did deconstruct the the idea of God that I'd I'd ever had and they they were maybe 20 years ago or something those videos so we're talking the the early noughties but then he bought this book out maybe I don't know I don't know how many years ago it was Love Wins and it really challenged that concept of hell and it's very much what you were saying before that it wasn't something that was actually in the Bible or scriptural and hell was spoken about more as a, a here and now thing not an afterlife thing and 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 let's get into that Brian let's 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 unpack that but before we do i guess i wanted to sort of ask a, another question which is how do people reconcile that god is a god of love and yet builds this hell and and i want to sort of answer that that i didn't actually think that god was a god of love i think i would say that out loud i'd say it on paper but my experience of god was I thought he was an angry, vengeful God watching and waiting for me to fuck up. And maybe that was because of my Revival Centre experience, or maybe it was deeper than that, but I really didn't believe that God was a God of love, and so it was easy for me to believe in hell. And and I I think it fit. I, I think it wasn't that I had a contradiction there. I think I genuinely had this view that God was grumpy, and so it was easy for me to believe in hell. Oh, totally. And and that was the image of God that I always had. And, and this is why you were led into this constant cycle of sin and repent, sin and repent, sin and repent, because you had to please God. And you, but then you had to speak to Jesus because Jesus was the nice one and he'll speak to his dad and say, hey, they fucked up. But remember that shit where you sent me to hell for a few days? You remember where I, I spent the weekend in hell for their sins? <laughs> That's right. I had my two-and-a-half-day holiday. But it's, it was that sort of thing. And you look back at it now and you just go, what an absolute ridiculous belief system <laughs> that you, you did that. But you did it and that was your cycle. But it was God was absolutely that grumpy God that you just spoke to and spoke about. It, it's just... Exactly how it was, but God was love. And yet at the same time, there are verses in the Bible that seem to say that 
God is love, that seem to say that God is forgiving, that seem to say that all will be saved. And I think that's because, and this is not something that we would have subscribed to as Christians, right, at the time, but that's because the Bible has many different authors and the Bible has many different voices. And we choose to tune in to whatever voices we want. And I think our negativity biases drive us to hear the negative voices rather than the positive ones. And so I think you can make a very, very solid case from the Bible for universalism and that there is no eternal hell, as much as you can make a good case that there is a hell. And so I think people that look at the Bible and say, oh, does the Bible teach there is no hell or does the Bible teach that there is a hell? Yes. I think the Bible clearly teaches both, but that's because the Bible is not a unified document, which is what we were taught to believe, right? So people that see that contradiction, I I don't think that it is a contradiction. I think it's just because you've got two different voices. And I think the sort of Christianity that we were involved in lent itself towards that that negativity, lent itself towards this angry sky god that is waiting to judge us. And so I really do believe that this conversation in hell is actually leading us to to sort of dig up and uncover that the fundamentalist God doesn't love us. The fundamentalist God, his acceptance of us is so fucking conditional. And yet at the same time, out of our mouths came, God loves you unconditionally. See, I'd even go a step further in saying that that negative bias it didn't lend itself to that. You were led to that because all of the messages that came from just about every any platform, you'd hear your occasional grace messages from the pulpit or in study groups or wherever, but most of the messages were fear-based. They were absolutely driving you. They were coercing you. They were controlling you. They were manipulating you. And whether people did that intentionally or whether people did that because that just became habitual, it was absolutely used. It, it, yeah, no, you're right, 100%, you're right. It, they were fuckers, like they manipulated people. And even now just the, that fear-based stuff, it just makes me so incredibly angry because it, it messes people up. There are so many people that walk around with such a fear about what they do, about fucking up, or is it going to send them to a a bad place? It's just horrible. And it's a quick win for the church, but ultimately, like you're saying, it really messes people up. Because if you can get people into a fear state, they'll make decisions based on that fear state. And I remembered I read a book by Ray Comfort. Was it comforting? No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, so he's friends with Kirk Cameron, but he he wrote a book, and you know, and you know, Kirk Cameron's ministry is just so graceless; it's just all about fear. And Ray Comfort wrote this book called Hell's Best Kept Secret, and it was it was exactly that. It was when you share the gospel, tell him about hell, and it was just totally saying, "Here's the trick. Here's the way to get them to 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 commit to Christ, because otherwise, there's no reason." And there's some truth to that, but it was a no, not even a, an attempt. It was a push for us as evangelists to manipulate people's fear through using hell. So there is a conscious decision by a lot of ministers, by a lot of churches, by a lot of preachers to utilize the the hell message because it does manipulate people. And a prime example of that, Brian, is 
I was told by someone quite close to Lloyd Longfield, who was the leader of the Revival Center, that he didn't actually believe in hell and he actually believed in universal reconciliation, that ultimately everyone will come. And this guy was telling me, about, and he'd heard it from Lloyd himself. And he said, but the reason why Lloyd didn't preach that is because then people would feel free to do whatever they wanted to do. And so here's a preacher who himself does not believe in hell and yet will allow that belief and will even utilize that belief in an attempt to control people. Conscious, directed decision by that person. And it happens all the time. Uh, it, it absolutely does. And many people, it, it keeps them in that state of fear, as you said, and that just keeps them involved. They're too scared to walk away because if they walk away, then they're breaking the golden rule, the made-up golden rule, the myth, the fairy tale. But that's the fear that, that's hooked them in. Yeah. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Celine from the Cult Hackers podcast. So I'm a former member of a high control group, otherwise known as a cult, who left when I was about 30. That's about the time my daughter was born. That's you, Celine. We explore what it's like to be in a cult and leave one. We interview former members and leading cult experts. And we also talk about the long journey of making sense of the world afterwards. Yeah, that's a journey that you've witnessed and helped me with. I'm a media graduate interested in the place cults have in our society. And I'm an organisational psychologist these days with an interest in leadership and who also studies cults and cultic groups. There's a new episode every week where we look at cults from every angle and attempt to crack the cult code. So search for Cult Hackers on your favourite podcast app and catch up with us every Saturday. Are you doubting your religious beliefs? Having questions about changing or leaving your faith? Well, you're not alone, and Recovering from Religion is here to help. Learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing your religious beliefs is a journey. The people at Recovering from Religion are intimately familiar with this path and are there to help you cross that bridge. Their passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. They offer both peer and professional support. Find out more by visiting recoveringfromreligion.org or find the links in our show notes. So so let's talk about some of these inconsistencies that we have around hell. And I guess the first one I want to bring up is that people would say, God creates hell because of his justice, that his justice must be uh, met that his justice demands eternal separation or eternal punishment. What do you think about that? Eternal punishment for temporal sins. Do you think there's a justice in that? Well, I thought Jesus came to really break down those walls. Yeah, but even before that, even before Jesus came, right? Like, is it fair to create a place of eternal suffering for temporal sins? Oh, you know, you whacked off and you didn't accept Jesus burn in hell you know, or, or you stole a Mars bar from 7-Eleven when you were 14 and you didn't accept Jesus, there you go, burn for eternity. It's ridiculous. When you objectively look at it, it is absolutely ridiculous. But also we're retrofitting that belief too. So Christianity drove that. So if you're talking the pre-Jesus story, the Jews didn't really believe in a hell. No, there was no hell. There's no hell in Judaism today, and there was no hell in in ancient Judaism either. It didn't it didn't exist. 
there was a place where you went when you died. And even that came about later on, Brian, that the yeah. idea of Sheol was, from a Jewish perspective, was something that evolved later on. It, 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 and not long before Jesus, the contemporaries of Jesus actually started to believe this. But back in early Judaism, no, there was no hell, there was no heaven, there was just death. No wonder Jesus had to come. They were all drifting away. It, it doesn't make sense. Like, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense. I, I sit here and I'm embarrassed to even think that I bought into some of this, but this is like most of our beliefs that we had, that we bought into that, that we peddled it without really thinking. But it is an inconsistency. This God who loves you so much that he sends his son to rescue you is going to eternally punish you for the most minor of sins. Yeah, because of some sense of justice. And there is no justice in that. And I was talking to a guy in the street some months ago who was street preaching and we were talking about this and and he said, oh, because God's justice demands it. And I said to him, how can eternal punishment be in any way justice for temporal sins? Even, and here it comes, right? Even Adolf Hitler, everything that he did, right? And you and I can argue certainly demands justice, but eternal? I don't even know if if that demands it, right? And I know I probably opened a can of worms there, but temporary or temporal sins being punished for eternity just makes no sense. And as humans, oh, we connect to justice. We we do like justice. If if we do see someone do something wrong, you know, it has to be something relatively serious. We do want to see them punished in some sort of way. Sure. And, and we do that with our children. We, we try and get them to learn from the consequences so they don't do it again. Or if they do do it again, they'll think about it and they'll reflect on it and then eventually that shit doesn't happen anymore. Well, Brian, can I, can I stop you there and say, unless you are some sort of upset Indian father, you're not going to douse your daughter in petrol and set fire to her because you have a sense of justice. Now, I know that people are going to listen to that and go, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah, that, that happens in India, right? That, that fathers will, in fact, douse their daughters in, in petrol and set them on fire because of shame. But when you hear that, you think, that is just atrocious and terrible. Well, that's God. That is God who invites you to the barbecue and you get there and he goes, hey, guess what the main meal is, motherfuckers. Invite you to the barbecue. Exactly right. It just, God is love. No, he's not if he sets you on fire. Well, what about the next one? People will say, okay, you're talking about flames, but actually the flames are metaphorical. It's actually just an eternal separation from God, right? It's not actual flames. It's just people choose to be separated from God. How can you be separated from God? In him we live and move and have our being. Like the, the, the life force is imparted from God and everything that God has created, he has to sustain, including hell. So even hell, philosophically, rationally, logically, cannot be a place of eternal separation from God because if God's not there, it doesn't exist. So even that, the idea of you know, okay, it's not flames, it's just eternal separation from God, does not match the picture that the Christians tell us about God. You can't be eternally separated from God. It's just impossible. God's everywhere. God is. Yeah, if you believe in him, absolutely. 
Well, that, yeah, sure. I, I'm, I, like I said, I'm sort of jumping in and out of of the the Christian perspective because I'm trying to show the inconsistencies of this. And there's plenty of them, but yeah, croc. The the other one that sticks that used to stick out to me that I didn't understand, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, is if the eternal separation or being sent to hell is the punishment for sins, that's the final punishment for sins, then how did Jesus pay the price for our sins if he is not eternally in hell? And I don't say that to be blasphemous, right? But I'm just sort of saying, how did Jesus pay the price for us? He died on a cross, right? So I can understand if he saves us from death, he took our place in death. That seems to make sense. But from a Western Christian perspective, how did he save us from eternal hell by taking our place if he didn't actually go there for eternity? Yes, he went there for two and a half days, right? As we said before, Jesus paid a weekend for your sins. <laughs> but even that is, that is illogical. Oh, absolutely it is. It, it's, but then the argument you get from the Christian folk is that he overcame hell. He took it back. He got no, out he of there. No, he didn't. It's still there. And you and your relatives that don't believe, you and I are going there. That's what I'm saying. This makes no sense. He didn't defeat anything. But for a matter of fact, he defeated hell. So who created hell? His father. So he defeated his father. Fucking makes no sense. I mean, yeah, we've all got daddy issues, but for fuck's sake, <laughs> this takes the cake. But it's, it, it is, it's a ridiculousness. But this, these are the arguments that, the, that you hear, and then people will just shut you down if you can actually point out those inconsistencies. People don't want to hear it because their whole life is hung on the fact that you have to have this hook. You have to have this thing that if you don't do what you're told, then this is where you'll go. Yeah. Okay, so another one, another problem I have with the view of hell is that they say, God doesn't send you to hell, you choose hell. God doesn't, you know, those those little babies, right? I mean, here's a, a prime objection to it, right? Those little babies that die two days after birth without being baptized and saying the sinner's prayer, they have chosen hell. Uh, well, no, that's and that's where they use the argument that I spoke to before. But if, if you're talking from a pure sense, yeah, absolutely, they've chosen hell. But people are saying that, um, you know, it's free will, you've got choice, this is how good God is. But it makes no sense to think that anybody would choose hell. Would you choose hell, Brian? As much as you may want to watch porn and whack off in front of your dogs or whatever sins people think that you and I are up to, would you really choose an eternal damnation for, for such a temporary fix? I feel that I've just been sent to hell because I'm a very visual person and I'm just visualising you sitting there in front of your dogs waking off. No, no, it was you. It was you, by the way. No, I'm pretty sure it was you. In my mind, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I'm feeling dirty. I can't get it out of my head. This is, it's it's, it's not good. This is going to be here with me the rest of this episode and possibly beyond. But of course you wouldn't choose that. Who in their right mind would choose? And that's the key. Who in their right mind Right, so anybody who would choose hell with a full, fully informed perspective must be in some way mentally deranged. And even our temporal, earthly, human court systems say, if you are not in your right mind, then you are not necessarily responsible 
for the choices and the consequences of your actions. And so for anybody to consciously, logically choose hell, which I don't believe anybody would, but if anybody did, then they would be out of their mind. And therefore, what sort of a God would send people to hell? The other thing that sticks out to me is, oh yeah, no, you're deceived into choosing hell. And so what? God has set up this tricky little system that if you don't say these prayers or whatever, and he's got all these things in place to trick you, he's put this devil in place and these demons to trick. God is love. God sounds like an absolute motherfucker. And I don't believe that that is, in fact, the Christian picture of God. What this is, is it's this Christian picture of hell, which paints God this way. And that's why you've got Christian universalists, because they turn around and say, I'm sorry, but I, I, I choose to listen to the positive voices in the Bible. Yeah, and, and look, for, for me, I probably got to that point as well where I was a, a progressive or a universalist or liberal. But for me, that was a step out because of all this stuff that didn't make sense. So I tried to reconcile the things that didn't make sense. And you just create another set of rules and another belief system to justify it. But eventually for me, eh, that, that was just the road out. This is my last one. This is my last objection, right? Because I do want to bring these up because I think we have to rationally address these challenges. And I think when we're inside the church, we don't have time and we don't have the resource. I think this is an important part of deconstruction. And you brought this up before, Brian. And I said, let's come back to it. So let's. Can you, as a Christian, be truly happy in heaven knowing your loved ones or anyone is in hell? And what kind of people would the saints be if they don't give a fuck or are even happy knowing that their mother, their father, their their kids, their whatever, is actually out of mind, out of sight, but eternally suffering? Yeah, but Troy, they made that choice, and and that's what and that's what they keep bringing them back to. Oh, they made that choice. And I tried everything that I, I could, but I know they're there. But I tried everything, and 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 they made that choice. They rejected God. They turned their back on this loving God who sent me to hell. Yeah, but wouldn't you be doing at that point everything in your power to plead with God and saying, "Come on, let him out." Give them another chance. They know now, right? There's no, there's no more ambiguity. I know they didn't listen to Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort, right? But now they know. Now they know. Let them repent now. That's what you'd be doing. And you're not God. I well try sometimes, but well, I, I mean, except, I except when you're in front of the dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, is. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there is. And if you plead enough, then God puts your relatives into an escape room. And if they can get out in under an hour, then they can come into heaven. Sure. But now we're talking purgatory. Now we're talking, you know, universalism. And and exactly right. And this is what the Christians do, right? Because the doctrine of hell makes no sense. It makes no sense from a from a biblical perspective and the picture of God, it makes no sense from a philosophical perspective on God, and it makes no sense for us experientially. I think that w- if if God creates hell, we are better than God in terms of our ability to love and to show mercy and to show grace. Now, I am not saying that in a blasphemous sense for those of us that are listening, that those those of you that are listening right now from a more progressive perspective. I'm just trying to show the inconsistencies. 
But the other thing they used to say, Brian, is that they'd say, oh, God will wipe your mind of your relatives and of your friends and family. You will have no memory of them. And so therefore you won't have to worry about their suffering. And David Bentley, who I'll I'll share his book with you a little bit later. He's a Christian, a Christian universalist who makes a lot of these arguments. He says, if God does that to you, then you are no longer you. If God takes away your memories and takes away your memories of relationships, which has formed you into who you are, you are no longer you. So it is impossible for God to be able to do that. So you would have to be aware of your past and you would have to be aware of your experiences and relationships and you would have to be aware that those people are suffering. And for what it's worth, Martin Luther actually said that the saved will rejoice to see their loved ones roasting in hell. And Thomas Aquinas said it will increase the beatitude of the redeemed, whatever the fuck that means. People believe this stuff because they know that logically, if they're going to believe in hell, they have to deal with these philosophical inconsistencies. Yeah, you've got to swallow the lot or you've then got to become a progressive or a universalist. I mean, that's the only only way that you can stay in some sort of faith by doing that. You've got to tweak the rules. You've got to tweak around the edges to make sure it's palatable and it works for you. And then what's left? And and who decides? Like if, if God's deciding who goes to hell, what is there? There's around 4,000 different denominations of Christianity with fuck knows how many different theological differences. Which bits does God go, uh, that theology is a little bit shit? Um, yep, hell eternal, for you. Eternal damnation. Yeah. I, I mean, what a fucking crock of shit. Because where's Fire the Fire up the Weber, Jesus. <laughs> I do. I've got. I'm looking at a Weber in a box in the room that I'm recording right now. I haven't even put it together, so that's. I think oh, that's, that's how you know we live in Melbourne because you're not even outside. Oh, I don't think I'd be outside recording. It's just weird, Troy. But yeah, no, I look, just met that your barbecue is still inside. Look, I, I hear you, Brian, but you know we talked about it being a, a tool of social control before, and I think the fact that you. You not only have to believe in Jesus to be saved, a lot of these churches believe you have to believe in hell to be saved as well. You can't you can't go around telling people about Jesus and telling them that they don't really have to believe because ultimately there's universal reconciliation because then you lose control and you lose that really powerful tool for social control. Well, then you do have your universalists and um, progressives like Rob Bell saying, hey, here's the context of hell in the New Testament. It was this rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem that they chucked all the stuff. Yeah, the Gehenna. The The Gehenna. Gehenna. So, you know, we're we're talking about the here and now and we're, we're talking about a literal place, but it was a literal place because it was a metaphor and blah, blah, blah. You you do hear all that, and that makes it a little bit more palatable. And, and for me, that you know, it did help me. It helped me reconcile some things at the time. But again, then it comes back to that eternal separation. Like if it's not a literal place where people burn, it's the separation from God stuff, and we've just covered that. So it just goes around in circles. Yeah, but I, I think the thing to point out about the Gehenna argument from a universalist perspective is that the fire doesn't quench but that doesn't mean that you're not consumed the the argument from a universalist perspective is that you spend time in this metaphorical fire in this metaphorical testing and gosh if it's any worse than 
than real life, then it must be pretty bad. I'm not saying I believe this, of course. I'm saying this from a from a universalist perspective. The fire may continue, but what it's trying to consume is in fact consumed, right? So when you look back at those verses where, the, where Jesus talks about the Gehenna, it's the fire that goes on, not not the work of the fire or not what the fire is sort of consuming. So what I mean by that is, you know, you throw wood on a fire, you can keep the fire going by throwing on more wood, but eventually that wood is consumed. So it doesn't speak to eternity. It's not saying that you're going to, that the wood is going to stay in the fire forever. It's saying that, you know, the fire continues to burn because, you know, God's work of refining us is, is a sort of a continuous work. I think it's Matthew 10, 28. It talks about, you know, it's God's power to destroy both the body and the soul in the Gehenna. Even that is saying that the soul is ultimately destroyed. And that speaks more to annihilation than eternal torment. But again, that brings you back to these different voices in the Bible, right? Some of the writers believed in annihilation. Some of the writers believed in sort of a purgatorial cleansing, everybody saved. And some of the writers, in the end, did believe in eternal torment. And you get to choose which ones you're going to pay attention to. And I know if you're going to believe in a God of love or you're going to believe in a God of anger and retribution, I know which one you're sort of going to lend yourself to. And I say all this, Brian, because I think it's important for us, because this is so deeply ingrained in us, this indoctrination, I think we have to use the Bible sometimes to argue with ourselves, to argue with those irrational fears, because that's where they come from. Until you get to a place like yourself where you can actually say, I don't believe this anymore. I don't care. I can walk away from it. Fantastic. But some of us can't because it's so deeply indoctrinated. It's so deeply ingrained. You know, I, I joined this, this movement at 13 years of age. And so sometimes I do have to revisit these arguments and I do have to say to myself, even from a biblical perspective, it's not true. So you're saying the Bible is a bit of a choose your own adventure. It totally is. It totally yeah. is. That's why you go to some churches and the women are wearing head coverings and you go to others and they're, and they're not. You go to some churches and the women aren't allowed to speak in church. You go to other churches and they're allowed to speak. You know, people pick and choose all the time. Yeah, of course they do. I was, um, I was just trying to stoke your fire. I know. And you, and you were, in fact, stoking my fire, as you often do when I think about you and your dogs. <laughs> I, I guess I want to sort of say to people that if if you're from a place of progressive Christianity now, then I think you would do well to look into the idea of hell and look into the doctrine of hell and look into some of the writings. Two that I – actually three that I would recommend. There's David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved. I think that's a very good philosophical argument against hell from a Christian perspective. I really want to encourage people to read that. The first chapter is really dense and I almost stopped reading, but then I kept going and it turned out the rest of it was actually quite good. So David Bentley Hart, That All Shall Be Saved. Also, I think David Artman, who's another pastor, he has a podcast which is called The Grace Saves All Podcast, which is a Christian universalist podcast. I'll give you a trigger warning. It's very Christian. He's all about Christianity, but it will speak to your inner fearful Christian if that's what you need. I think they're really two very good references. And I think another one would be the one you mentioned, which is Rob Bell's Love Wins. If, if you're looking to speak to your inner fearful Christian or you are in a progressive 
Christianity and you're looking to resolution to this idea of the doctrine of hell, I would visit those three resources. One more time, that was David Bentley Hart, That All Shall Be Saved, David Artman's free podcast, The Grace Saves All podcast, and Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as as I said, Love Wins was very much a tipping point for me across many, many areas that it reconciled some of those inconsistencies. But one thing, there, there was a quote in that book that, that I remembered, and, and I think, I'm pretty sure it was from, from that book, Love Wins, but it was, we shape our God, and then our God shapes us. So essentially, you are what you eat. If you fed that fire and brimstone in your Christian journey and story, that's what you become that consumes you. And I think we see that across so many areas of Christianity, that your God is shaped and then it shapes you. So it's quite a, a telling thing with hell because it depends on what denomination you're in, what church you're in. I mean, definitely in the Pentecostal and evangelical scene, I was fed the hell story a lot more. Interestingly, towards the end of my journey, at um, a more a progressive space, hell was never spoken about. Heaven was really never spoken about either. It was it was very much about the now, and there was certainly a relationship element to it, in terms of relationship with God element. But the hell stuff wasn't a focus. So, and those people were I've spoken about it many times during the podcast that they were loving, they were accepting, they were people that really did live out that love expression of their faith. Yeah, well, their theology didn't have Jesus saving you from the Father, you know. <laughs> yeah. So so when you're doing that, you're not living in fear of this God. I can understand. So, okay, Brian, we're coming to it at the end of our, of our time for this episode, but what about post-Christianity? I've spent a lot of time here feed, feeding you all this, you know, let's talk to our inner our inner fearful Christian that we all have and use the Bible. But what about having left? You say you don't deal with this anymore. No, I don't. I probably haven't dealt with the fear of hell for maybe 10 years, I reckon, at this point. And never, it was never an enormous fear because I didn't totally buy into it. I tried to make it work and I tried to package it up. I don't deal with it. I, I mean, I identify, as I've said a few times, as more agnostic because I was a spiritual person pre-Christianity. I'm a spiritual person post-Christianity. And when I say spiritual, I don't even know what that means, but I'm open to there being something else. I'm open to something that transcends this life that we have on earth I, I really don't know what that means what that looks like and, and I'm not even sold on whether that is I, I think maybe you close your eyes you die and you're gone but as I've said and and I know you have too I've I've sat with people as they've died it's an incredibly powerful thing and each time I've done that I've felt something. And whether it's my emotions leading me, I, I don't know. Some people might just say, yeah, absolutely it is. But it feels like when they leave, when they die, their body just is a body. Like there's there's nothing, there's, there's something that has left. 
Well, life has gone. Life has gone, but it's 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 really interesting. It, it's just a. And I have absolutely no theories around it. And I know there's a lot of science coming out at the moment that is talking about, and they've done a lot of experiments on rats, but now starting to take it into the human realm, that after you die, medically die, that your brain is still active for a certain amount of time. So it can be five minutes to 20 minutes. And your brain activity doesn't actually slow. It speeds up. It's it's like your life flashing before your eyes is the way they have explained it because there is just so much activity. There's so much happening there. So what's happening? What's happening after that? And for me, that's something where I'm like, I don't know. And I'm not trying to solve it. I'm actually happy with not knowing. But I certainly don't believe that because I've walked away and deny that Christianity is a true thing, that I would be going to this eternal punishment, this place. It, it just, it's dumb. It doesn't make sense. And if if that, if I'm sent there by a God that is saying that, then you know what? I That God is shit. Yeah, but what can you do about that anyway? If you're That's being right. sent there, you're choosing there, but you, you have no, you're not really choosing, you know, you're being deceived. You, you just got to take it. it. It doesn't exist. But look, I hear you, Brian. I was doing some work at a university this week away from away from home and I was thinking about this episode and I was walking through the grounds really beautiful grounds and I was thinking about they've got schools of philosophy and medical science and all this and I'm thinking from an atheist perspective we're supposed to believe that you die and that's it and yet so many of us have a sense that there is something more that there is something more to life and as I was walking through these beautiful gardens and I was thinking to myself I too have this sense that there's something more. And maybe that is just my brain playing tricks on me because of, you know, because of the way that we've evolved and everything. I, I'm, I'm open to that, atheists. Please don't stop listening to this podcast. But you've got to work with what you've got. You know, we've got to work with what we've been given. And if we all seem to have this sense of something more and something deeper, well, I don't think we should be criticized for that by the hardcore atheist community i think we need to accept that yeah sometimes we do feel that way and maybe there is something more we don't know the atheists don't know the the believers don't know the the deists the spiritualists you know none of us know but we do have this sense that there's something more and i want to share a, another story and, and and please don't hear this that i was a teenage fundamentalist is now saying that you'll have to believe in an afterlife when my mother died and I've told you this before, that was an extremely traumatic experience for me because I loved and adored my mother and I didn't know how I was going to go without my mother in my life. But when she went, in the moment when I came home, she'd just passed while I'd been out for a walk and I came back and I saw a dead body there. The first thing that struck me was all this fear of hell thing came back. Boom, 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 it came back, Brian. And it was like, where is she? Where is she now? Is she... Is she in, in, in eternal torment, are you going to eternal torment? And I stopped myself and I thought, fuck off, fundamentalism. You are not going to be here in this moment. And I pushed it away. And I experienced the passing of my mother and all the trauma from a natural perspective. Don't get me wrong, it was all there. But this fear of hell for my mother came back and bit me on the ass in that moment. And I know the Christians will say, well, that's because you say it because you know it's true. 
No, it's because I've been indoctrinated. It's because I have been conditioned. And as I said, 20-something years later, still bites me on the ass. And I have to remind myself. I have to talk to myself. I have to talk to that inner fearful 13-year-old Christian and say, this isn't real. And from a Christian perspective, it's not real. From a philosophical perspective, it's not real. And from a deconstructed, no longer being a Christian perspective, it's not real. And so I think there's a, there's a trauma there. I do. I think there's a trauma there. And I think we have to deal with this from a traumatic perspective. And I don't know that that's in the scope of this episode, but maybe something we can visit at another point where we can bring in some of these experts around the fear of hell and, and hell trauma and hear about how we can deal with it. If, if none of what we've talked about today helps you, then maybe it's something that you need to deal with from a therapy perspective. But I do believe that it can be resolved you know, with time, with therapy, with reading, whatever. Yeah, I agree. It can. And, and today may have brought up more stuff than, for some people than it's actually solved because you know we're not, we're not answering any of this what we're doing is we're saying these are the inconsistencies mm. these are the things that do not ring true these are our experiences these are our beliefs but also using the scriptures that were used to justify hell which there's no evidence we wanted to use those too to justify why there's not because it doesn't it just doesn't lend itself to truth. So think about that. Don't accept it. And But it's easy to say that because, as Troy's just said, you know, 20-odd years on, it still bites him in the ass. Yeah, and there's that negativity bias as well, which will come up and say, oh, you're just thinking this because you want to you want to sin or whatever it is that comes up, you know, I mean, it's just garbage. But Brian, I want to suggest two books from a non-Christian perspective or two resources, I should say, from a non-Christian perspective. First of all, Bart Campolo did an episode with Bart Ehrman about the fear of hell and about hell. And so that's on his podcast. And we'll definitely put the link in the show notes. And the other one is Bart Ehrman's book itself, which is Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife, which actually traces both from Greek thought and also from uh, Middle Eastern thought and Jewish thought right through to Christian thought. And it looks at how the, the doctrines of heaven and hell actually evolved. And so I think that they are very, very good resources for those of us that have deconstructed and walked away from Christianity. So that's, um, again, Bart Campolo's episode with Bart Ehrman and um, Bart Ehrman's book, Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife. And as a matter of fact, all those resources that we've talked about today, Brian, I'll make sure that those links are in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Bart Squared, I think they called that that episode. So it was Bart and Bart. That's a great episode. I think that was one of the first Humanize Me episodes that I listened to when you recommended that to me. Yeah, have a, have a listen because it does make sense a lot of the stuff that they're having. But again, you've you've got to be you've got to be in a place to hear this. You've got to be in a place to question it. And I know that many of our listeners are, some aren't, but we just hope it's been helpful. Yeah, definitely. Brian, I just want to highlight that next week we have a really important episode coming up. And I think this is on par with our Jeff Bullock episode in terms of the impact that it's going to have on some people. Well, I, I think the person that is going to be spoken about in the episode was incredibly influential 
and impactful on you and I throughout our Christian journey. Yeah, that's right. And that's Keith Green. The episode in two weeks' time is, was Keith Green a cult leader? And we're going to interview Tracy Phelan, who was a member of Last Days Ministries, lived on campus with Keith Green and Melody, and was involved in that ministry for for years and years and years. She is about to launch a podcast telling her story. And I think this is another one that I think I think we're the first to actually get her onto some sort of audio recording and get her to tell her story. So this is exciting. So I think this one is actually probably going to cause a bit of a stir as well if the Christians get wind of it, because she basically says, spoiler alert, that Keith Green was a cult leader and that Last Days Ministries was a cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big one. It was a great chat, and and Tracy was so incredibly lovely in uh, in her chats with us. And her podcast, Feet of Clay, will be coming out soon. So look out for that. But uh, listen to this episode in a couple of weeks' time, and hear it here. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Now I've created a new outro for our episodes now, Brian. So how about I throw to that outro in a moment and we can hear your soothing tones as we end episode one of season four. Okay, I'm going to now step back and listen to myself. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 